Welcome to Neighborly. Witches, Wisdom, and Winemaking. House number nine, Little Street. The witches of number nine are just like everyone else. That is, if everyone else moves things with their mind and calls to the creator of the universe like they might just respond. Calliope, the first witch, is wrapped in a warmth that starts at the top of her highest curl and ends at the worn sole of her favorite pair of shoes. Of course, there's the wind-swept hair of Cordelia, and her skirts that flow in the wind perfectly, their chaotic natures creating seamless harmony. The third witch of number nine, Celeste, is out of this world in a way that can be more obvious than the other two. She is usually seen wearing billowy dresses with stars sewn throughout the piece. One look in her storm-gray eyes tells a story, unique to the individual looking. Together they live in a little lavender house, surrounded by a broad white porch, happily. The witches of house number nine wake up at 3am. It's a pleasant morning, not unlike their other mornings together. Calliope wakes up feeling the vibrations of the unknown music swirling around in her chest. Cordelia wakes up smelling like the vast ocean she once used to swim. However, Celeste wakes up with the memory of what she saw. All at once she knows that today was one of those days. It was a vision day. She looks at the warm smiles written across their features, and before she could think better of it, she leaves that vision forgotten in the night. They make their way outside and feel it. What they feel every morning they wake up. It's a force that has flowed through them for a long time, Breathing it all in, they smile and begin their morning ritual. Their hour-long dance every morning has become a normal occurrence to behold on Little Street. Should you find yourself up at the witching hour, it's best not to watch their silent dance, lest you start to hear the music as well. After 60 minutes have passed, they stop and make star tea. A fairly delicious tea, or so I've heard. Then they make their way to the front of their house and sit on white wooden stairs. They always have extra cups. Of course, the number of those cups changes day by day. Sometimes there's two or three, and on one occasion, five. One thing stays consistent, though. There is always at least one cup. It is strongly suggested one not accept star tea from the witches. The galaxy will claim your mind and you will lose yourself to the stars. The likelihood of you being able to turn them down, however, isn't likely at all. 
It isn't even slim to none. It's just none. If that cup is meant for you, then you'll drink it. Calliope won't ever let you walk away, and why would you want to when that sweet voice is calling you to your fate? After that, the three of them split off into different sections of the house. Calliope and Cordelia wander into the kitchen together and begin to pull out ingredients for a morning of baking. Celeste gives them each a sweet kiss and moves down to the basement. Coming down into the basement, she walks down a short hallway, past the exposed foundation of the house to reach the witch's wine-making workspace. She then starts the process of making new wine for selling. Once everything is properly set up, she falls into the simple routine until it's complete, and then heads upstairs. While she's doing that, Cordelia and Calliope prep everything they'll be making. Twelve cookies, six croissants, two blueberry pies, one strawberry pie, and a couple of potions. After prepping the baking, they meet Celeste at the front door, where they have a guest for tea waiting. Tea is drunk, and conversation is had before the witches and their neighbors split off. When they head back inside, Cordelia slips down to the basement in order to get the packages of bottles of wine ready for distribution. Calliope then takes the finished wine and begins her trek. She leaves behind her lovely wives, then the suburban backdrop Little Street provides. She makes her way around town, settling in her usual routine that came along with the birth of their business. As the hour passes, the packages in her car that contained filled wine bottles and startlingly accurate life advice start to dwindle. Elsewhere in the house, Celeste abruptly stops sewing the intricate pattern of stars that can be found on all the dresses that she wears. She knows what's about to happen, it's familiar in a way that only two other people have managed to be. Her vision swirls and then she knows. A scream pierces the air, a harrowing, gut-wrenching scream of prey being feasted upon. The scene shifts as the grotesque being of reality bleeds into a different place. In the middle of her vision lies a brick, dropped haphazardly on the ground, covered in blood. Then it fades. In the places they stand, Calliope and Cordelia freeze as a familiar chill runs up their spines. They each run off in the direction of their home. A little bit before ten, Cordelia arrives, followed shortly after by Calliope. They both walk into the living room and are greeted by Celeste sitting on their long leather couch. They all tensely take a seat. It's quiet for a minute. And then, a simple, why didn't you tell us? Calliope asked gently, resting her hand on Celeste's shoulder. Celeste looks down and sheepishly admits she didn't want to worry them, and that she had forgotten. Cordelia sighs and puts her head in her hands. What did you see? And so she explains everything I already have. Not as well, of course, but that's to be expected. By the end, Cordelia has a completely neutral face with the only indication of her feeling anything being tapping of her foot. Calliope, on the other hand, is pacing the span of the living room, running her hands through her hair. After that, a strained silence follows them out of the living room. 
The witches walk into the kitchen and begin to prepare lunch. It's nothing fancy, just some simple cucumber sandwiches and what can only be described as iced tea, but it isn't even close to that. Each drink is perfectly tailored to them. Calliope's tasting like the feeling of listening to your favourite song for the first time. Cordelia's taste like the sensation of being out on the open ocean. Celeste's like cloud-watching in an open, golden field. They sit and eat in silence, unlike the comfortable one they've grown accustomed to on the days they ate lunch together. No one makes eye contact until the last of their meal is finished. When they do lock eyes, they really look at each other, and an unknown understanding is reached. Their posture relaxes just the slightest, and they each share a brief, sweet kiss with one another. Then they begin to prepare the ritual they've been planning all week. They lay down, close their eyes, and begin descending into the place they need to go. Calliope opens her eyes to an audience of memories. They flicker in and out of their seats, and the moments of her lives watch her, as if expecting her to do something. She walks down the stage, through the vast rows of her audience, until finally, in the ninth row of the third floor balcony, she finds it. Where have you been, Calliope? Her caregiver asks. They're a stern old person, gripping onto the power their body once granted them. But time was running out, and they were losing their hold. Nowhere. Just with friends. A young, thirteen-year-old Calliope sighs. She didn't act her age at all. She never did, even when they found her five years ago. You went back there, didn't you? When Calliope says nothing, the only person close to being her parental figure sighs. You need to focus on where you are now, not where you were. Stay here with me. Don't go back to that day, okay? In a different place, Cordelia is floating. For a minute it is only her and the water. Then she remembers and lets her eyes drift open. It's the same vast and lonely blue that she dreams about nightly. Slowly, she notices her memories drifting by her like hunters surrounding their prey. She shakes her head to herself, then starts to swim down. It takes a bit, but she gets there. Stop crying, Cordelia. You are king. If you want to stay that way, I suggest you do what I say, her adopted father tells her, looming over her like a giant over a village. She looks down and wipes her tears silently. Eleven-year-old Cordelia cared so deeply for everyone she'd met. She looked up at her father with wide eyes and sniffled. I'm sorry, Dad, and he's in pain, and I don't like that. I just want him to be okay. She felt tears well up in her eyes again, but this time she let none slip from her eyes. Her father sighed and crouched down before her. This isn't about you. When others are hurt, we need to be there for them, not the other way around. All we can do is sit and be there, sometimes. When Celeste opens her eyes, she's falling. She's been here before and laid out before her are flashes of the lives she's led and the things she's done. Focus, she thinks. After a moment, she stops. 
Suspended in midair, she can see everything. It's a sight to behold, but not one she has much time to appreciate. She closes her eyes and lets all of her more recent memories wash over her. She feels something shift, and when she opens her eyes, she is where she has to be. Do you see the cat? A hand moves into ten-year-old Celeste's vision. The young girl lights up and frantically nods her head yes. I see it! She giggles, and the sound is bright and clear. Never change, Celeste, the voice beside her says. It's familiar, but there's no name attached to the person. Let's stay here forever. She hears a laugh that holds no malice. This person cares dearly for Celeste. If only she knew who this was. Celeste, there are things coming. Things you need to know. We can't stay here forever, but we can stay here for now. One by one, they awake to warm sunshine peering through the glass roof down onto them. Standing up, they speak of what memories they witnessed and move to their garden in the back. As they tend to their grapes, a silent peace falls over them. The tension in the air and in their shoulders loosens. Anyone walking by in that moment or watching from afar could see in this moment so clearly how in love they were with one another. How they drank in each other's beauty like they had found an oasis in a desert. They finish and head back inside, hand in hand. It's dinner time at number nine, and today's main course is strawberry pancakes and some freshly squeezed lemonade. As it is prepared, the witches move around the area in a harmony one could call magical. As they do, they dance. This time to the tune of a folk song, and not the song of the universe. As they eat, music plays faintly in the background. The sounds move around the room, gliding past the witches only to swirl around and settle again. When the meal is finished, they commence cleaning up the rest of the house. It's a daily ritual that they started hundreds of years ago. Dishes are washed, beds are made, and the whole time easy smiles rest on their faces. After cleaning up their house, the three of them settle into their designated hobby room. It's a cozy room, with pale green walls covered in paintings made by Celeste. In the far left corner sits an old vintage stool that Calliope walks over to and settles on. Absent-mindedly, she begins to pluck out a familiar tune on a mandolin with a soft smile on her face. Cordelia, who's currently shuffling her deck of tarot cards, recognizes it and begins to softly sing along, followed by Celeste, who joins in with the harmony of the song and finishes her painting. After a while, the songs begin to fade, and instead they're replaced by discussions of other things and distant thunder and rain growing closer. Sleeping spells, memory spells, and the success those spells brought them. It's hard to know why they do. Inside sources say it's just for fun. As the night begins to draw to a close, the witches prepare for bed. In this house, that always begins with a snack. Taking the tin of cookies they made that morning, Cordelia and Calliope each grab one and wonder, 
whose dreams will they frequent tonight? Each night brings them to a new person. There have been times when there's a reason they go where they do, but for the most part it's just a poor, unfortunate soul with rotten luck. After they finish, the witches of house number nine crawl into bed, tired and happy. They whisper untold secrets and giggle. Celeste knows tonight isn't over, but she enjoys the peace while she can. She sighs, content pushing it out of her mind. They fall asleep to the sound of a raging thunderstorm whirling away outside. A simple, plain-looking door stands before an unseen watching figure. The only thing of note is a golden nameplate engraved with the name Wilbur. The door swings open and the door moves to where the figure is standing, paralyzed. As the door moves closer, the figure realizes it can't see what's inside. When the door finally passes over the figure, it feels so wrong. There's something wrong with that room. Once inside, the figure sees it shift many different forms until it seemingly decides that it doesn't like the figure and spits it back out to a place it doesn't recognize. Lost and alone, the figure watches the room drift away. Good night. Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Today's House was written by Paris B and edited by Matthew O.K. Smith, with music by Alex Schwartz and art by Cloudy Appleart. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighbourlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighbourlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend, and who knows, eventually God might finally listen to us. Today's food coupon is for a foot-off pizza at Tony's. Not sure what that means. Tony's burned down in the secret fire of 1973. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.